While you're turning to Psalm 11, let me tell you about something that happened this morning as we were getting set up. Uh, the door went, and the guy was at the door, and uh, opened the door, and he said, do you guys have Bibles? Yeah, tends to be what we've got here. Uh, we have Bibles. Could I have them? Sure. You can come in and join us for the service. It's like, no, I can't. But could I have a Bible? Like, yeah, that's fine. So he came in and he saw our Bibles and said, they're very expensive looking Bibles. I can't take one of them. So no, we buy extra to give to you, to give to people as gifts. We give them away. That's what we do. How much is that Bible? So it doesn't matter. How much was it? It was about 20 euro. So I'll pay you back. Don't worry about it. I'll pay you back. I said, tell me, tell you what, promise me that you'll read it and that you'll come back one Sunday and I'll take that as payment. Okay. What's your name? Owen. I just think we're sitting here and we take for granted this thing that sits on our laps. There's a guy calling to the door looking for the Bible, uh, looking for the words of life. So I'm going to read Psalm 11. I'm going to pray for us immediately after that, but I'm also going to pray for Owen um, and pray that the, the Lord would do his work through the word. So let's read Psalm 11 together. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. They shoot in the dark at the upright heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for these words, the words of life that we hold in our hands. And we do pray for Owen, uh, wherever he is right now, whether he's in another church service or uh, whether he has gone elsewhere. And we pray that the, um, that the gift of the scriptures would be uh, enriching, perhaps even a turning point in his life. And we pray that he would look back on this day and see it as the most significant uh, cold call he has ever made. But we pray for us now that as we turn to the Bible that you would meet us also, that you would thrill our hearts afresh. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who uh, was the writer and creator of Sherlock in the 19th century, wrote 12 letters, or rather wrote a letter to 12 of the most uh, well-known and influential men in England at the time. The letter had six words. It read, all is discovered, flee at once. Six words. All is discovered. Flee at once. 24 hours later, not one of the 12 men could be found. 
obviously Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had no idea uh, what was going on. He wrote it as a test. All is revealed, all is discovered. Flee at once. And they immediately all fled. They ran and hid. What makes you run and hide? Psychologists talk about the fight or flight reflex as a response to danger. I imagine, maybe this is just me, I imagine that probably most of us are in the flight end of the, the fight or flight reflex. Some of you might turn around and give somebody a bit of a dig, but, you know, go be blessed. Uh, most, of us, most of us are going to hightail it out of there. Uh, when, there's a, when there's a threat, when there's something to be afraid of, many of us run somewhere safe. We run to a place of safety, of security. We fear uncertainty. There's been lots of uncertainty in our world over the last couple of weeks. Everybody's freaking out about Brexit and about all that's going to mean and what's going to happen with the border. You know, is there going to be back border patrols and things like that? Everybody is freaking out. And lots of the language is actually really unhelpful because it just inflames people's fears. It feeds fear. It feeds the uncertainty. So everybody it seems on the face of the planet that's eligible for an Irish passport is currently applying for one um, so that they don't have to queue in the non-EU part of the airport. It's all driven by fear. It's all driven by uncertainty. It makes people flee, flee to a place of, uh, of safety. So uncertainty makes people flee. Punishment will make people flee. If you're, if you're an Irish kid who grew up in Ireland, you will understand this. I only need to say two words to you to strike fear in your heart. They are the words wooden and spoon. I'll get the wooden spoon. Sometimes my mother would just rattle the drawer and I'd go running up the stairs. No, no, mommy, no, mommy, no. We ran away from our parents when they were angry because we ran to avoid punishment from the wooden spoon or whatever your cultural equivalent was, ladle or whatever. Uh, I, guess, I guess, broadly speaking, three things make us run. Three things cause us to, to hide, to flee. The first is guilt. If you feel guilty, you're going to run and hide. I can't let anybody see that I've done that. I can't let anybody know what I'm really like. So guilt, guilt's one, makes us flee. Second one is, is fear. Fear makes us flee. This, this situation is too hard. It's too scary. It's too uncertain. So I'm just going to go to my safe place where I have Netflix and sweet and salty popcorn. Or third, punishment. What I'm going through feels like punishment, perhaps even cosmic punishment for something that I've done in my past. I need to get out of here. I need to flee. I need to run. I need to hide. This psalm is a conversation between David and his friends during a time of trouble, during a time when his friends think, you need to get out of Dodge, David. You need to flee. You need to get out of here. You're about to be killed. 
verses 1 to 3, David is kind of recalling what he said to them. So, he says, how can you say to my soul? And then he quotes them. You see the quote marks that start halfway through verse 1, and they end at the, uh, at the end of verse 3. He's quoting them. So, how can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain, etc.? They're saying, get out of here. Now, this little phrase, your mountain, remember, this is this is David's friends speaking to David, so they're not saying, run to the Lord, David. It's not your, as in God's mountain. He's saying, David, you're, you're a shepherd. You know the hill country really well. You could hide there really easily. It's go to the safe place that you know, David. Go to the comfortable place that you know really well. Go there, David. Get out of time. Go to your mountain, shepherd boy. Go to your mountain, not Jerusalem. Get out there and hide. Make yourself safe and do it as quickly as possible. Why? Because people have fitted the, the arrow to the bow. There's, uh, the, the shot is about to be taken. It has been drawn back, and it's about to be loosed, and David is about to, to be killed. Or we have this reference to the foundations, that everything is about to come crumbling down. Any sensible person would get out and run as fast as they can. And so David responds then to, to their advice. He responds in verses 4 to 7, uh, and he says that he isn't going anywhere. He's already said in the very first line of verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge, and now he explains why. And what are the reasons that he gives? Well, first of all, because the Lord is still in charge. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. The, uh, secondly, that the Lord, it is God who passes judgment. This is a little strange little phrase of his eyelids test the children of men. It's, a, uh, it's just another way of talking about testing. Uh, so eyes and eyelids. Uh, he's saying... I don't need to fear men. God's the one who judges. He's going to judge the wicked. And then thirdly, he says, because this suffering, this suffering that I'm enduring, it's not, I'm not being punished. I'm not being punished for anything. It's testing. It's designed to, to build my character. So David isn't going anywhere. He's staying right where he is. And these are his reasons. And this is the kind of courage that being a Christian gives you. This is the kind of courage that comes from trusting in Jesus. This is the kind of courage that, that we have. Because these things, these reasons that David cites, they're true of us. The Lord hasn't gone anywhere. He's no plans to go anywhere anytime soon. He is the one who passes judgment, not men. And if we're trusting in Jesus, the suffering and hardship that we go through is not punishment for sin, but rather it is testing of our character. So let's look at these reasons in more detail. He stands firm, first of all, because the Lord is still in charge. Put it another way, what's David saying? David says, God hasn't done a runner. 
and so neither am I. God hasn't done a runner, and so neither am I. This is hugely important for us. It's hugely important. It's a hugely important remedy to fear and and uncertainty. It's not just It's not just glib advice. It's not kind of saying, you know, you come along and you're in a tough time and somebody might just say, well, the Lord is still in charge. Uh, it's It's not glib. It's not easy. It's something that really matters. I mean, what's David saying here? He's saying that the Lord that we are talking about here is the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the one who has acted in history to rescue his people, who draws his people into relationship. It's that Lord that is still here. He is the one who is enthroned in heaven, and he is the one who sees. This reference to eyelids, it's basically, the best way to think about it is he's, the Lord is peering, he's squinting. I can't see any of you right now, but the Lord can see. It's like he's examining. See, David's saying, do you really think that this is taken him by surprise? Do you really think that he has missed this? He is looking intently at this situation. He is restlessly and relentlessly watching from his throne. He is ruling and he is reigning. Take courage from that, Christian. He sees. He knows. He rules. He watches. Why is this a good thing? Because it means that in the chaos, in the uncertainty, in the fear, there is something immovable. Because it means that the Lord who sees will not turn a blind eye to the situations that we find ourselves in, nor will he turn a blind eye to those who wrong us, persecute us. He sees, he knows. We might have to play the long game, It might not be immediate retribution. It might be something where we simply entrust ourselves, as Peter says of Jesus, that we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, that we set the hardship and the chaos that we're we're going in through right now, that we set that in the context of eternity and go, well, these people might not get what they deserve. They might not get, I might not get justice now, But I know that the Lord is just, and that one day everything will be made right. He sees, He knows. Take courage from that. And so, I mean, I'm fascinated by the news at the minute. What a busy time to be a journalist, eh? But I also think, you know, Europe. And whether it's Trump or it's Hillary, whether it's our jobs or our careers or our homes or our families, the Lord's not getting off his throne anytime soon. He's not going anywhere. He sees. He knows. Don't run and hide. Don't flee to your mountain. Run to him. Run to the one who sees. And remember, of course, that when we're talking about the enthroned Lord, 
who are we talking about? Who do we know that this is on the other side of the incarnation, on the other side of the cross and resurrection? We see with clearer eyes than David saw. Who is the one who sits on the throne of the universe? It is the man Christ Jesus. There is a human being sitting on the cosmic throne of the universe. And why is that a good thing? Because he has walked our road. He is able to sympathize with our grace, with our trials. He knows what it's like to be wronged. He knows what it's like to be unjustly accused. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to go hungry. He knows what it's like to go thirsty, to be tired, to be homeless. He knows, and he sits on the throne of the universe. Doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that cause your soul not to run away from him, but to run to him? Because he sees and he knows. He sympathizes in our weakness. David also stands firm because he counts himself as righteous. He knows that he has right standing with God. He says, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. So he said, this is testing for me. I'm part of the, the righteous. Now, what's he, what is he calling himself here? What does this mean? Well, <coughs> basically, he's saying, I'm flawless. I'm blameless. I've done nothing wrong. I am innocent here. Now, it may well be that for us, for you and I, in any given situation, we are genuinely the, the innocent party, that we are the wronged one, uh, that we are blameless. And in that sense, we have nothing to fear and nowhere to hide. However, after some honest reflection, there are at least just as many times when you stand on the side of the perpetrator as on the victim. Sometimes you're actually not the flawless, innocent party, neither am I, that actually we are the ones who have wronged others. And so we're not righteous. We're not blameless. We're not flawless. In fact, we don't very much like the people who think that they are. We don't like the people who go around saying, oh, I am perfect. You know, these people who just kind of seem to hover, you know, six inches above the ground and, and have a, an inflated sense of self. We would rather that people would be honest with their own flaws. Well, that might start with us. Then actually, we're not all that righteous. We're not all that flawless. But here, it's quite clear. Here, David considers himself to be righteous. He's blameless, and that's what gives him confidence. How? How? How is he righteous? How is he blameless? How is he flawless? Well, I think we get a hint of an answer in verse 7. Why is David righteous? for the Lord is righteous. I say that this is a hint of an answer. It's a glimpse. 
It's a glimpse into one of the most encouraging, courage-giving truths, excuse me, of the Christian faith. That we stand before God, not because we are clothed in our own good deeds, not because we are clothed in our own righteousness, in our own perfection, but in the perfections of God Himself. More specifically, that we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That is how we can call ourselves, count ourselves amongst the righteous. Not because of our own goodness, but because of the goodness of another. And that is the truth of the gospel. That by trusting in Jesus, we are clothed, covered in His perfect righteousness. We talk about Jesus' death. Jesus died for my sins. He, he, uh, he took my sin on Himself. But there's an exchange that goes the other way as well, because you see, in Jesus' life, He lived perfectly. He lived a life of perfect obedience before God, His heavenly Father. He never sinned. And so, at the cross, as He takes our sin, what happens is His perfect life, His righteousness comes to us. It is credited to us, such that when God sees us, He sees the perfect obedience of His Son, the Lord Jesus. We do not stand before a holy God with our own good deeds. That's why we sing the words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. So why would you fear? Why would you fear people? Why would you fear the opinion of others when you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Why would you fear the opinion of others when the only opinion that will ever matter into eternity has already been expressed over your life and it was done 2,000 years ago? Why would you fear God? When we know that He loved us and sent His Son to die for us and to make us righteous in Christ. So David is courageous here because Jesus is in charge. He's on the throne. He's the one who declares us innocent. And thirdly, he stands firm because he knows that the suffering, the trial, the hardship that he's going through, it's not punishment. It's testing. Those are two very different things. You see, when Jesus covers us in his righteousness, when, uh, when we stand as forgiven Christians, and then we go through hardship, it's very important to remember that if you're a Christian, you're not being punished. Not necessarily. I mean, there is a sense in which sin has consequences. I mean, even as a Christian, if you break the law, you're going to go to prison, and that's a punishment. Um, you, can't stand, you can't stand before a civic court and say, actually, I plead the blood of the Lamb, so I'm just going to go now. 
Sin still has consequences in, in that sense. But, but on a cosmic level, you're not being punished. Whatever it is that you're going through or have gone through or will go through, it wasn't punishment. It isn't punishment. It's testing. Those are two very different things. Suffering for us is is trial. It's something that grows us. God's punishment is reserved for the wicked. That's what we see in uh, verse 5b and verse 6, that the Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence, and He will punish them. He will rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. When we talk about the wicked, who are we talking about? We're not talking about bad people. We're talking about people who ultimately refuse to take refuge in the Lord Jesus, people who ultimately refuse to run to Him. Now this, if you're going through a period of trial right now, if you're going through a period of suffering, this doesn't necessarily make the suffering easier. It's worth just saying that up front. It doesn't make it necessarily less painful. But we take comfort from the fact that that God still comes to us as our Heavenly Father and He's not punishing us. He is testing us. Another biblical way of understanding this that might be helpful is the idea of a, of a refining fire. Now, I don't imagine that you've done any refining recently, um, but it's what, you, it's what you do to get gold really pure. You want gold to be really pure, what do you do? You stick it in a fire. And then all of the, well, the technical name is the dross, all of the dross, all of the impurities, they get burnt up. And what are you left with? You're left with pure gold. And so Peter, in his first letter, would talk about trials in that sense, that, that the suffering that we go through, it's a refiner's fire. It's burning off the impurities to leave the pure gold behind. In that sense, we can rejoice because the trials that we go through ultimately have a purpose. The suffering that we go through isn't, the, isn't the, the arbitrary blind indifference of the universe. It is the, the refining of a loving Heavenly Father. Another way to think about it is that this, this testing, this disciplining that the Lord does, uh, Hebrews would say that, that it's a reminder that we're children, illegitimate children, orphans, don't have parents to discipline them. So when we go through hardship and trial, we're reminded that actually it's because we have a father who loves us. Because any loving parent disciplines their child. The children that we don't want to be around are the ones that have no boundaries, no discipline, who just get away with blue murder. It is a good and loving thing that they should be disciplined. And David sees that. David sees that what he's going through is testing. It is building his character. It is causing him again to run to God, to trust 
him, to not trust himself, to not trust the comfort, the security, that anything that this world would offer. It's a testing. And so, so where does this courage come from? Where does the courage as a Christian come from? It comes from the knowledge that God is there, that he isn't going anywhere, that he is in charge, that he sees, that he has declared us innocent, and that the suffering and the trial that we go through has a good purpose. It is testing. A little bit of a history lesson by way of illustration. For those of you who like history, uh, here we go. 1685. Come back with me to 1685. In France, there was a law passed called the Edict of Nantes that allowed uh, Protestant Christians give them civic rights. It protected them from persecutions from the, uh, from the Catholic state. And it found in 1685 that actually it was revoked, that it had been repealed, that it was no longer uh, legal. And after its, re- uh, its revocation, persecution rose up against uh, French Protestants who are called the Huguenots. That's how we know them in history. And many of the Huguenots fled, and many of them fled to Ireland. That's where we get Dollier Street from. Westmoreland Street and Dollier Street. Dollier Street is a Huguenot name of a sheriff of Dublin, a French Protestant sheriff of Dublin. Anyway, that's by the by. Let me tell you about Marie Durand. Marie Durand was 15 when she was imprisoned for her faith in the Tower of Constance in the Mediterranean Sea in southern France. You can go and visit it today. She was 15. At the age of 18, she learned that her brother had been hanged for his faith. At the age of 31 in 1745, she was offered her freedom on one condition, that she would renounce her faith. She refused. They came to her and they said, flee to your mountain, Marie. And she refused. She was finally released from prison at the age of uh, 53, after 38 years in prison. And back in the 17th century, or 1700s rather, when you were 53, you were pretty old. If you were to go to her cell today, which you can do, you would see one word scratched by fingernails on the stone floor. It is the word resisting. Resist. Stand firm. Be courageous. Etched into the floor. Do not flee. So how do we get to that place? By remembering that we need not fear the uncertainty, though the foundations may shake, because God is still in his throne. We need not flee because of guilt, 
because Jesus has taken it and he has made us righteous. He has declared us innocent. And that we can endure hardship knowing that it is a refining fire and that one day we have the hope of seeing the Lord. That is the hope of verse 17. Look at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And what is the end hope of the Christian? The upright, that's us, those of us who are trusting in Jesus, the upright shall behold his face. That's what we're going to. A time when every, uh, every tear shall be wiped away. When death and pain and mourning will be counted as the former things and they will pass away. Can I encourage you then to resist day wherever it is that you find yourself, whenever trial comes, resist day. Etch that into the stone floor of your life. Some questions to reflect on then as we conclude. Where do you flee? Where's your mountain? Where do you go when things get hard? A number of people do this, and I've experienced it during the short time of, uh, of City's life. We'll be three in September, so we're kind of toddling, kind of throwing tantrums from time to time. What, ta- what tends to happen is that sometimes some people uh, come across times of trial and uncertainty, or they feel guilty because they've, they've done something and they don't want anybody to know about it, or they've had a bad day. And what do they do? They run away from community that their mountain is isolation. They shut people out. That's the worst possible thing that any of us can do. Even if you end up being like Naomi in the book of Ruth, where she comes back at the end of chapter one and she says, do you know what, guys? I'm really struggling. The Lord sent me away full and I have come back empty. I need your help. Can I encourage you that if you're a kind of person who runs away into your little into your little Netflix hermitage, don't do that. Run to community, run to the Lord's people. Some of you might run to escapism. Whether that's just haven't just trying to have a good time, just to kind of shut up the voices or whether it's too much to drink or other substances, or whether it's pornography, running to escape, to, uh, to flee from reality just for a moment, anything, so that you don't have to face up to what's going on. Don't run there. You know that ultimately it doesn't satisfy. You know ultimately it doesn't make you feel any happier. It doesn't make you feel any more any less guilty, it only compounds it. Or are you like me? And do you run to the things that you can fix and you can control? So you've got the really chaotic thing over here, and you're like, okay, I'm just going to ignore that, and I can fix this thing over here, so I'm going to do that. That's what I do. That's my mountain. My mountain is anything that I can fix, anything that, that I can have control over, and I'll ignore the, the mess that's over there. Don't flee to the mountain. The second question is, when are you tempted to, to distrust God? 
when are you tempted to distrust him? When it comes to your family, you're like, no, I've got to control that realm of my life. Or when it comes to your career, no, no, that's got to be my little bit. Why are you distrusting God? He is the one who is enthroned. He is the one who sees. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're simply looking in at Christian things, can I just make it explicit and and help you maybe to see that this is the confidence that trusting in Jesus gives you? This is the confidence of the Christian. It is not arrogance. Sure, yes, okay. We'll, We'll all hold our hands up and say that there are, and have been, and probably will be again, arrogant Christians. Christians who are just not very nice to be around. But Christianity does not breed arrogance. It should not. Why? Because arrogance is about trusting in yourself. Christianity is about trusting in God. Arrogance is about trusting in your own abilities for your own security. Christian confidence is about trusting in the Almighty Lord. Arrogance is about trusting in your own goodness. Christian confidence comes from being clothed in the goodness of another. That's the kind of confidence we have. And so, as we conclude, Christians, be courageous. Do not be so fearful. You have no reason to be. Do not be moved by the changing sands of this world or the shifting winds of circumstances. Cling to the unchanging one, the one who sees, the one who knows, and who calls you his child, and the one who you will one day behold face to face. And he will look at you and smile and say to you the sweetest words in all the universe. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's worth standing firm for. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we need not fear, that we need not flee, for you are there, and you see, and you are good. Father, I pray for each life here this morning with our own temptations, with our own trials, with our own hardship and suffering with our our own uncertainties. Would they cause us not to run from you, but to run to you? Would they cause us not to run from community, but to community? And would we pursue you together for the glory of Jesus' name?